So my name is John Gibson um, and I am currently walking as hashtag one man walking a million talking from Land's End to John O'Groats um, and I'm now um, heading into the final days of this um, currently in Drumnadrochet um, and heading along the Great Glen Way um, towards Inverness and then up the John O'Groats Trail um, to the top. So we've got about 10 days to go um, and we're on day 67 of 77 days um, and it's been a remarkable privilege um, to walk opening up this conversation about suicide and, and mental well-being across the country. Um, we've spoken to many hundreds of people now uh, who've walked with us, who've joined with us, who've shown us immense hospitality and friendship and fellowship across the journey. Um, it really has been um, utterly remarkable and it's been a privilege to be part of this. I caught up with John in his campervan in Drummadrochet at the end of a blustery day to find out more about why he's taken to walking from Land's End to John O'Groats and why speaking openly and honestly about suicide has become so important to him. If you find some of this conversation difficult and you're in need of support, I'll give out the contact details for Mikey's line at the end of the episode. And before we get going, a quick thanks to Inverness-based company D&D Paving Limited, who have sponsored this and many other episodes across the course of the Speaking of Suicide series. So how was today's walk, first of all? Today's walk was just stunning. Um, we did 15 miles or so today from Invermoriston to drum the Drocket. And it was just beautiful, just fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Do you know this area? I mean, is this a walking territory you're so familiar I've, with? I've done a bit. Um, so some of my two and a half thousand practice miles were done in the area. Um, and uh, it's, yeah, it's been an area that I've come to, to love, actually. It's been great. Yeah. yeah. You've got a, a good tan on you. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> the weather's been well, quite kind though, hasn't it, this well, summer? Four four raining days out of 67 walking days so far, um, so it's been remarkable. That's not bad, is it? No, it's been amazing. That's and not bad. We did it the right way around. We started in the south coming north, and so England had this remarkable heat wave while Scotland had rain, I'm afraid, so it's it's been great. The right way to do it. So you've made your way all the way up from Land's End and you've now landed today in Drumnadrochet. Yes, ma'am. Just near Loch Ness. Yep. So how many miles have you done? So over a thousand now. Um, so we're into our last 200. Um, and this is day 67. So we have 10, um, just short of 10 days to go now to, to reach the top. Are you enjoying it? Um, I'm enjoying many aspects of it. Um, I prepared very hard for the physical aspect of it, so we're averaging 23 miles a day, um, and that's a tough gig. Um, was I as prepared as I might have been for the emotional aspect? I'm not sure about that, um, because it's been an incredibly emotional journey. Um, and it's been an emotional journey not just because of how I have travelled, um, and my own thoughts and my own processing, my own pilgrimage, if you like. But it's hashtag one man walking a million talking. And the reality is that uh, we've had many hundreds of people join us, walk with us, engage us in conversation. Um, and 
they have their own story to tell and so we um, are engaged immediately in in their story in, in the beauty and the difficulty and the carnage of what they're talking about um, and some days it's easier than others to carry that um, but the whole idea of this hashtag one man walking a million talking was to open up the whole conversation around suicide because having now spent the last just over two and a half years in the suicide community across the UK I realised that um, so many individuals and so many families are living out this carnage post-suicide in a family member in total isolation. Um, and I find that, I did find that, find that really difficult to observe and it was something I wanted to change immediately. Let's, I mean, a, a, a big part of this walk I know is to have frank and open conversations uh, about suicide. So. I guess we're going to do just that here as well, yeah. um, which means talking about how you found yourself in this in this position um, and walking the length of the the country, raising awareness for mental health and 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 getting that suicide conversation going. Yeah. So, tell me about your your son, John. Yeah. So Cameron, a beautiful third child, second son. Uh, we have two other children, Malcolm and Ailey, and. Um, absolutely essential that we talk about them too um, because this is not just Cameron's story this is the Gibson family story and uh, Isabel my wife and Malcolm and Ailey have carried with myself an incredible burden but Cameron was our youngest um, he was a 24 year old veterinary surgeon um, someone who lit up a room um, someone with a fantastic smile um, dentist's son but he had a beautiful smile um, and people talked all the time about the perfection of his teeth and his smile um, and he really did light up a room he was a person who um, yeah just brought goodness into into everyone's lives um, he was an incredibly giving person um, and I think increasingly since he died we've also understood that he carried many other people's burdens and concerns and their problems because he made himself available to, to talk and to share and to care. Um, so uh, the 20th of October 2019, uh, so just over two and a half years ago, um, in the early hours of the morning, uh, Cameron took his own life uh, with no note left. Um, great support network, great group of friends, great group of colleagues, wonderful girlfriend. I would say this, but a very supportive and loving family. And he left us with leaving absolutely no indication of what had gone wrong. Um, and no history at all of psychological disturbance. Um, we spoke with GP, we spoke with the university. He was only 15 months out of university. Um, there was nothing at all, nothing in counselling notes, nothing in GP notes to suggest that he'd had any struggle at all um, psychologically. Um, and, and I found that really, really difficult. Um, but increasingly, I've now identified these so-called spontaneous suicides with no background of psychological distress are absolutely on the increase. I've met so many families for, for whom that is the case. And of course, there are still families for whom it's been a long journey of psychological difficulty, disharmony, depression, anxiety, OCD, whatever it might be. But increasingly, it, 
it appears that these the numbers of spontaneous suicides with no psychological disturbance no obvious psychological disturbance mm. I would emphasize um, seem to be on the increase and so in the early hours of the 20th of October 2019 two police officers came to our door and asked me asked me if I was the father and next of kin of Cameron David Roger Gibson I said that I was and he said your son's dead and it, he would appear it would appear that he's taken his own life and of course immediately you enter the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross grief journey and your first thing is that you reject any possibility that that has happened. Um, there must be some mistake. Um, this is wrong. This is not Cameron. Um, but tragically and sadly, it absolutely was Cameron. Um, and so we started on this horrific journey, um, wandering in the wilderness, um, but from the outset, um, and I think this has helped other people from the outset, we've made it very clear that Cameron took his own life. Um, we have no idea why. It would appear that this, this side of eternity, um, we're never going to know why he took his life. Um, because I spent the first year trying to find out why Cameron had died by suicide. But there are no answers. Um, and, and so we, we will not know um, whilst we're earthbound. Um, but we started this journey of great grief and catastrophic grief, catastrophic carnage. Um, and then I started walking with other people and meeting other people who had been through the same thing. Um, but made it very clear from the outset, importantly, and it's become a bit of a battle cry for me that we have to say that our kids, our parents, whomsoever it is, have died by suicide. Mm because I've seen it obfuscated too many times and, and understandably, perhaps, I don't know, but clergy often get involved and, and, and try to make it kinder, make it nicer somehow. It was a tragic accident. Well, the grieving of someone who's died by a tragic accident is different from the grieving of someone who's died by suicide. Because when someone dies by suicide, the thing that you have to get through is the guilt and the shame, and it is catastrophic guilt and shame. Um, and that guilt and shame is not something else that enters into other types of grieving. You know, if, if Cameron had mm. been gored by a bull or been killed in a road traffic accident, that would have been horrific. And we would have grieved that process, but that grieving process would not have included guilt and shame, uh, which seems to just completely envelop those of us who are left in the suicide community. Guilt and shame connected to... to what exactly? Well, it is different according to what your relationship is with the individual who has died. But for me, I was the father. I was the protector. Um, I was the, the, the father who was very close to this lovely son. Um, and uh, we were very close. And I had to carry this burden that, one, I hadn't protected Cameron in the moment of his greatest need. But that secondly, he had chosen, for whatever reason, not to phone me in that moment of greatest need and say, Dad, please could you come and help me? Um, and both of those, when you add them together, create this profound sense of guilt, profound sense of struggle and difficulty. Um, what did go wrong? Um, was I a terrible father? Was I the worst parent on the planet? 
Um, and it becomes an illogical journey, but it's still a journey that you have to go through. Um, and unfortunately, I met many people, I meet many people in the suicide community for whom uh, that's a stuck record um, and they don't get past the guilt and shame. And often because of that, that guilt and shame turns to anger and they get stuck in anger and they punch out at the police or they punch out at health services, the GP or whatever. Um, and I guess one of the things I long to do um, as part of this journey with the suicide community is to help people as we as we commune together, as we get together and open up our discussion to say, just hold my hand for a second, you need to carry this burden. You need to jettison this guilt and shame because it's illogical. You don't need to carry it forever. And what I find interesting is because you are opening yourself up to these conversations, I mean, have you found that you're then allowing people to talk to you about your son's suicide? Because it is one of these subjects that, that I suspect outside of that world You've no idea how to walk into it. You've no idea what to begin to say because Completely. it's sort of everyone's worst nightmare. Completely. And, and so by saying, I'm going to open up the conversation myself, you allow, yes. allow people to come in and just well, say a, they don't know what to say or whatever it is that they need to share with you. But otherwise, it's so hard. Well, you know, it's a lesson that I learned as a healthcare professional many years ago that expressing one's own vulnerability allows the patient to express what they, what they want to express. And I guess it's no different um, in the suicide world when you open up with your story and your brokenness, um, because I'm broken forever as a result of Cameron's death. Yes, there are some days when I don't cry. Yes, there are some days now when I don't have to bury my head under the duvet. There are days when I hear myself laugh. And, you know, two and a half years ago, poor. That was never, ever going to happen. And just we've walked with people today for reasons that I don't need to go into, but we've had the most ridiculous day of laughter. And, you know, I, now I don't have to stop and rebuke myself for that laughter because Cameron, would, we, I said this three or four times today, the person who would have laughed most heartily today was Cameron Gibson. He would have found it so, so amusing and so, so funny. And, and, and so to be able to get past that horrible moment, that horrible months, years of saying, I'm never going to smile again, I'll never laugh again, I'll never dance at Achille again, I'll never listen to music again, I'll never do any of these things, because life's finished. Well, life hasn't finished, um, and I can talk about this if you would like me to. I wanted it to finish. Eight months after Cameron died, um, I had my own suicidal crisis. Um, and it was during that year of firsts, and those of your listeners who have been through this process will absolutely identify with the year of firsts. So the first Christmas, the first New Year's Day, the first birthday of the loved one who's gone. And for me, it was the first Father's Day in June 2020, followed three days later by Cameron's birthday. He would have been 25. And... I got through to the Friday afternoon and I realised that I had no peripheral vision, I'd lost my peripheral vision and I was cutting the grass and instead of going across the way in relatively straight lines I was actually going round in circles, cutting crop circles in my lawn and immediately I thought this is 
a metaphor for my life. This is a picture for my life. I'm going to go just round and round and round in circles in my grief. And I don't want to do that. And so I made an attempt in my life. And fortunately, my wonderful wife um, was able to, to meet me in that and, and save me from it. And with the help of a consultant psychiatrist, our amazing GP and, and my own family, um, we've, we managed to get through this. Um, and I can now, I had four months following that when I wanted to die every single day of my life. Um, and I battled that for four months um, because my grief was, was not allowing me to move forward. Um, and more than that, I wanted to be where Cameron was. I wanted—I was his dad. I wanted to make sure that everything was okay. I wanted to see where he was. And so I wanted to die. Um, and then, because of remarkable um, help through the consultant psychiatrist, and, you know, I, I, I came from a standing start with, with psychiatric ill health. I, I had never had a day's illness in my life due to psychiatric ill health. I'd never had a day of anxiety or depression or anything. And then I was immediately suicidally depressed. Suicidally depressed with profound moments of anxiety, which broke me. Um, and I wanted to die. Um, and, and that's proved quite helpful for me in a sense, because I couldn't understand the suicidal mind ever before. I'd heard people saying it was selfish. I'd heard people it was this and that. And then I read about it um, and I've immersed myself in the literature around suicide for the last two and a half years because my question was, what is suicide? Why would, why would my 24-year-old son, who, who left us the last time I saw him as the life and soul of the party, you know, days later, um, kill himself? Why would that happen? And in those moments, in my own grieving, and my problem was that I, 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 I was living in this false perception that the world would be much better without me. And I now understand that's exactly where everyone goes in their suicidal thinking. And it is, for the most part, completely illogical. So I had seen the carnage that my son's death and departure had caused us as a family. And yet, in my suicidal ideation, I was saying, but the world will be better without me. I realised that Malcolm and Alien Cameron would grieve absolutely intensely for, for me, but I was thinking that my grief was so intense that I was holding them back, that they would, I would never allow them to move forward, and so it would be much better if I weren't here. Um, and, and so I wanted to die. And, and my illogical thinking was, let's just wrap up our grief for Cameron with their grief for me, Yes, it will be more intense, but it will be for a short period of time and they'll get through it and it will be just amazing because they won't have to worry about me anymore. And that's exactly where I got to. And in those horrible moments, it felt as if I was walking through treacle towards an inevitability that I was going to die, that I was going to take my own life. And actually, I felt relatively free in those final hours. It was a very bizarre thing. Um, I'd made the decision and therefore I was, I was free. I was going and I was going to see Cameron, which was so exciting, so wonderful. Um, and yet I was metaphorically wrestled to the ground and held, taken to a place of safety. I wasn't admitted, but um, I had to see the psychiatrist on a daily basis. And with the help of the psychiatrist, psychologist and my own family, 
I managed to get through um, to a place where I thought that I wanted to live again. And out of that came this desire to walk, a desire to find myself in the great outdoors. And, and, and part of that was these anxiety events which were so debilitating. Um, psychologists taught me about grounding techniques, external grounding techniques, where you find yourself outside and you look to the furthest point in the horizon or the furthest point in the heavens. Mm. And when you see that, you feel smaller, and as a direct consequence of that, your anxiety feels smaller. Um, and it was very helpful for me. And then from that I started walking, and I started walking with other individuals affected by suicide. And that became something that you know, became part of my daily pattern of living. And I realised for me that, um, yes, there was giving into that, but there was so much receiving as well. And I've just kept doing it, I've just kept going. Um, and, and that's where the Land's End to Jonah Groats um, idea came from, um, that we would hashtag one man walking a million talking, that as we walked we would open up the discussion and the debate, and, uh, and that's exactly what's happened. What's interesting though is through that happening and opening up that, that debate, what you're also doing is exposing yourself to a lot of other people's pain, mm -hmm. a lot of very, very difficult experiences, experiences that you can, of course, um, align yourself with in all kinds of ways. But has that not been difficult too, that actually you're, I mean, just immersed, not just in your own grief, but actually in receiving other people's? Um. I, I, I think if I stopped and tried to quantify the amount of grief that was going into the bucket on a daily basis that, that I was carrying, it, it, would, it could feel quite painful. Um, but for every quantum of grief that's shared with me, um, I think I hand two quantums back um, because of this walking, talking, sharing, and there is a real, as I see the connectedness in, in the suicide community through the discussion, that blesses me unbelievably, as, as people come out of splendid isolation and start to just be part of this amazing group of people with shared life experience, with shared beauty, with shared brokenness, um, that does something deep inside me which is profoundly healing. So just a few weekends ago, as we walked through, um, I forget where we were, we had a big group with us, um, and there were three families, um, all of whom had experienced suicide, um, with the average time from the suicide of, of their loved one by about three and a half years. And as I sat at lunchtime watching these individuals, I realised that none of those families had ever connected with another family affected by suicide grief before. So here were they coming for the first time out of splendid isolation. They shared telephone numbers and then realised that they also had children still alive who were the same age and could they go on holiday together? Could they meet up together? Because their kids were struggling with the loss of a sibling and so were their kids and so um, it, it it truly was 
a moment for me of, of realising the importance of this hashtag one man walking a million talking. Um, and, and there have been numerous stories like that which have deeply touched me um, and made me realise the importance of opening up the, the suicide community from its place of total isolation. I mean, the idea has been to, to walk the length of the, the UK, so Land's End to John O'Groats, and have these conversations. So part of that sounds like a, a big realisation of the importance of sharing, but has anything else come out of it that you think needs to be taken forward? Um, that you think, well, once I reach John O'Groats, which you're in the, the kind of final stretch almost now, um, where does your work go from there, from what you've been doing on this this particular journey? Yeah, I mean that, that's a great question, and obviously in these final stages, I've been I've been thinking that through. So, um, the hashtag one 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 man walking a million talking doesn't stop with with John O'Groats. Um, that's going to continue, um, and and I'm utterly convinced that there is mental health well being in in walking and talking. And I think I discovered early on that um, men don't do, men in particular don't do well um, across the room. They don't even do particularly well sitting across a chair in a living room or in a pub. But when you put men side by side walking brothers together, um, a remarkable thing happens. And I've had the privilege of walking now um, many thousands of miles. Uh, not just lands into John O'Groats, but in preparation with men. Um, and there's a kind of formula which you fall into um, without understanding that you're falling into a formula. And and that is, as you, when you walk with a man, um, there's the kind of, uh, how's the weather and, you know, you know what do you do and, and all of that stuff. Um, and, and that can be five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. And then there's a period of silence and there's always silence. And you have to get through the pain of that silence because none of us are very good at it. And then will come the, well, do you want to know why I'm walking question? Or, you know, where are you at in all of this? And then comes the reality of, of the brokenness. So. During the Land's End to John O'Groats walk, um, we've fallen into step with a number of guys, um, and they tend to be guys, although there are women out there walking as well, but, um, and, and some of these are ex-soldiers um, with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Some of these are individuals with diagnosed mental health issues, and some of them have mental health issues that are not diagnosed. Um, and they're out there just trying to clear their head. And as we walked and talked, there were tears. There have been catastrophic tears, um, but there's been connectedness and an, op an opportunity to introduce people to each other and, and, and see where that goes. So that, to answer your question, is what's going to continue. That, that openness of dialogue will have to continue. So I'm keen to walk uh, from through Orkney and Shetland so we've been asked by the people of Orkney and Shetland, why are you stopping um, at Caithness? Why are you not going? So the answer is, well, I'm going to keep going, not immediately, but maybe in the spring of 2023. 
And part of that because the Northern Isles have a bit of an issue with suicide um, and maybe are needing a campaign to focus on that and, and, and let's open up the dialogue um, in, in Orkney and Shetland and in the more remote island communities. So that discussion is going to continue. Um, that discussion is going to continue with the government as well. Um, and doubtless we will become involved increasingly with comment to government around mental health policy and particularly suicide prevention policy. Um, and, and so the work is going to continue. But, but one of the other things that I really want to do is um, there are a whole host of suicide agencies and charities um, and for the most part they work really quite independently and I'm not sure that is the best way to do things. So one of the aims of the Canmore Trust, which is the charity that we've um, created in Cameron's memory, Canmore being an anagram of Cameron, and with the sense that we can do more. Um, one of the aims of that is to uh, ensure there's a strong educational base in schools, colleges and universities to talk openly about suicide, not just about mental health, not just about well-being, but specifically about um, suicide and in the context of that suicide safety planning. So the work that Rory O'Connor has done uh, from Glasgow, Professor Rory O'Connor, suggests that 20%, one in five of young Scottish men and women under the age of 35 will have significant suicidal ideation. One in five. We have no idea who that one in five might be. We can't screen them out. Um, and that could happen any time from age eight through to 35 and beyond, possibly. So if we can't identify these individuals, then the educational process demands that we then educate everyone, every school child, every school pupil at secondary school age um, about suicide safety planning. And there are different models for suicide safety planning, but effectively it's a five or six stage process. Um, and that means that if you're confronted with suicidal ideation, um, the thing that you, everyone tries to do is chase it out the room. But of course, as you try to chase it out the room, it becomes bigger. It's the elephant in the room that when you try to chase it out, it develops polka dot spots and it's purple and it's green. So the more you try to chase it away, the more it becomes ridiculous. Um, and that would appear to be what happens with suicidal ideation. So we want to teach a different way of dealing with that. So instead of chasing it out the room, is another way that we can introduce more positive thoughts and put thought, positive thought processes into the room um, to allow them to expand and the suicidal ideation to, to, to gradually disappear. Um, so we want to ensure that every pupil in Scotland at secondary school age um, understands why we're doing that, understands that suicide is an important topic um, and Whenever I talk about this, people say to me, ah, but won't you actually increase the numbers of suicide? If you talk to young people about suicide, won't you talk about suicide? And, and I'm, I'm, I, I, I tend to react in a, in, a, in a somewhat internal negative way to that because I, I ask the same question about, well, sexual health. Um, you know, parents think that they're ahead of their kids with sexual health, edu sex, sexual education, and, you know, kids are a thousand light years ahead of any parent. Same with IT stuff. And it's exactly the same with suicide. So we think that our kids aren't Googling 
or exploring suicide and of course they are and we want to protect them and so the only way to do that is to provide this education around suicide safety planning and um, there are now three major international studies which would demonstrate that it is safe to do so with decent periods of follow-up um, that by discussing suicide in a school context of a certain age um, and of course that's to be that would have to be decided in a local Scottish context what is that age that we would start that discussion um, but alongside suicide safety planning that far from increasing suicidality actually protects against completed suicide but also um, attempts at suicide as well and the attempts at suicide is for me a bit of an elephant in the room so we know what our numbers are for suicide in Scotland and in the UK mm. we have no idea in actuality our numbers of attempted suicide um, and that's something that's going to have to change so as I speak to senior management within some of the bigger suicide charities in the United Kingdom, the number that's banded about on an annual basis is about half a million, 500,000 attempted suicides. Um, and, and you know, I, I find that absolutely incredible um, because any one of those su attempted suicides could have been a completed suicide. Yeah. Um, and so we clearly have to do something. This is not just about completed suicide numbers, it's about attempted suicide numbers and it's about downstream mental health from that and, and what we're doing as a society to try and make this better. You know, we've got eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, 14-year-olds um, attempting suicide or taking their own lives. And we have to ask ourselves uh, as a society, what are we doing? Um, I was climbing trees at 14 years old. You know, I, I, I didn't know anything about suicide. I didn't know anything about anything apart from climbing trees and skinning my, my knee and riding a bike and damming rivers. What have we done um, in, in a generational context that our kids, and it's not just our kids, but adults are also very broken. Um, and I think this is a profound question for government to deal with. Um, and it's a, it's a question that I would not wish to be the Communities Minister or the Mental Health Minister just now because these are profound issues which are not just about finance, they're about the, the, the ideals of society, they're about the, the morals of society um, and this is a big, big question which we're going to have to start debating and decide what as a society, society we really want to do to protect the well-being of our children. From listening to you, it it feels clear that you, when you very tragically lost Cameron to suicide, it obviously immediately raises questions, as it will in everybody, about why. But you've taken that why for Cameron and actually set out to ask much bigger questions, many of them, about not just why, but what can we now do? Mm. Um, in in a really powerful, you know, active way, you, you've clearly applied, you know, your your background in academia to asking all kinds of questions sure. to understanding this. Sure. So you may never understand, um, of course, why your son took his life, but the drive in you to understand uh, a wider thing that's happening in society yeah. comes across very strongly indeed. Are you able, from this journey, 
which will punch way on beyond John O'Groats. And from all the questions you've been asking and the people you've been talking to and sharing with, can you in any way come away with any sense of optimism that we can do something? Where, where do you sit with it now? Is there hope? Yeah, I mean, I, I, one of the things that has deeply impressed me in Scotland in particular is the depth of desire in senior government um, to do better with suicide. And we're a small country, but we have a National Suicide Prevention Leadership Group we have a lived experience panel. We have um, a suicide prevention strategy. We have had for the last five years. There's a new one in draft forum, which is uh, out for consultation. Um, and we have government minister responsible for the suicide prevention agenda. Um, that's remarkable. And the figures for 2020 are just out um, and we have seen a 6% improvement in our suicide numbers. Now, uh, at face value, and, and I, I, I won't make any comment beyond the face value, we have to accept that. Um, and so there are, there are grounds for positivity, huge grounds for positivity. Um, but I take you back to a comment by Durkheim, the sociologist from 1897, and Durkheim said very clearly um, over a hundred years ago that suicide was not about psychology, suicide was about society, um, and society was causing the problems with its, its citizens. And I, I think that it, it, it is a truism that we're going to have to confront. I'm not saying for a moment that many people who take their life have psychological distress, but that psychological distress is not the starting or the end point. There is an upstream point um, where society generates that or contributes to that. And, and, and is it social media? Is it um, the fact that our young people have to be handsome, beautiful, fertile, and talented, write a, you know, a thesis, you know, which bit of that can they not do and get away with in life? Um, I, I think the pressures on our young people are unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm tired of hearing my generation say, you know, they just need to, you know, sort themselves out and, and, and get on with it, because our young people are facing pressures um, which I didn't have to face. Um, and, and and so we need to walk with our young people and, 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 and assist them, not in a condescending, um, facile way, but in, in a very real, let's involve them in the debate as to where we might go with this. You know, if I was bullied at school, um, I went home to a loving family at half past three or four o'clock, and I didn't get bullied again until nine o'clock the next morning when I met the school bully at the gate. And please, I'm not saying that that in any way is acceptable, it's completely unacceptable. But now if you're bullied, you put your head under the duvet and the phone's on and, and you're, you've got 24-7 culture um, of, of bullying and, and, and these difficult things going on. And our kids don't get a chance to rest their brain. Um, and, and, and that's what we need to open up the debate around. Um, now, 
as an academic, I'm speaking out of a bit of a void here because there is actually very little evidence thus far that social media is, is impacting suicide uh, thus far and um, because my gut feel is that, that we will find that social media is having a profound impact uh, but we need to be careful that the studies don't actually tell us that yet but I think they will in, in due course. It has been fantastically interesting talking to you sharing stories with you. Where can anyone listening to this find out more about what you're up to in future? Is it via the Canmore Trust? And if so, where do we, where do we track you down, John? Okay. So, <laughs> where um, do we walk with you? Well, thank you. Um, I hope people will walk with us because this is a, a social movement and, and I, I ain't going away. Um, and I think that's really important. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I mean it in a let's do this together. Um, but I'm just an ordinary citizen, you know, and, and I just want to walk with the suicide community and, 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 and improve things and make things better. So um, on social media, it's hashtag one man walking a million talking, and that's the hashtag for Land's End to John O'Groats, but that's the hashtag that's going to continue. Um, and our website for the charity is the Canmore Trust, so it's the Canmore Trust, all one word, dot co dot uk. And uh, please meet us there and uh, please fellowship with us there. and and let's do this journey together. Good luck with the rest of the walk. May the sun keep shining and keep that tan up. Thanks so much. <laughs> and may your legs be strong and last last the next 200 miles. Thanks so much, I appreciate it. And uh, I, I, it's important to me that I say at the end of any interview like this that if, if you're listening to this and, and you feel broken or alone, or you're dealing with the carnage of, of suicide in, in a family member, um, it's important that you do understand that you're not alone. Really, really important to me that you understand that and that you get in touch um, with the Can Canmore Trust or with one of the other suicide charities um, so that we can open up this dialogue together. Um, you are absolutely not alone and you need to know that. Reminder of Mikey's line, if you or someone you know needs help or advice, you can text 07786 20 77 55 or contact them via Messenger, Web Chat or Twitter, Sunday to Thursday 6pm to 10pm, Friday to Saturday 7pm to 7am. Now here's Shona McPherson from Mikey's line with a few thoughts for you to mull over. Two things that I particularly noticed from John's interview there. One is the grounding and the healing that he found from moving and being in the natural world and walking. And then how that went from being his own personal healing to taking that movement and moving with other people in the natural world and doing this, this amazing walk from Land's End to John O'Groats um, and opening up conversations about suicide as he does that. And then secondly, the theme that came through for me was suicide safety planning. John talked about feeling suicidal himself, having never had any history of mental health struggles, to after losing Cameron, to feeling highly suicidal and moving from having thoughts about feeling suicidal to taking action. Thankfully, he was made safe by his partner and healthcare professionals and just as an aside we know that people who have been bereaved by suicide are at high risk and um, the 
through one of the things that he would have had in place at that time would have been a safety plan, a plan that he would have sat down with mental health professionals to look at what, when was he most at risk and what could he do to keep himself safe. And beautifully, that's now something through the organisation that he set up in Cameron's memory, the Canmore Trust, that he's working with others to see that we can have every teenager in secondary schools to have a knowledge and understanding um, of safety planning for themselves because we know that we know that we don't know who's at risk of suicide. We know that um, one in five young people may develop suicidal thoughts and uh, if they have access to this knowledge then they can keep themselves safe. So um, yeah, that's just an amazing and um, inspiring to see that journey that, that John is on. And yeah, if you feel unsafe right now, it's incredibly important that you know how to keep yourself too. If you feel that you need a safety plan, it's something that you can get through contacting your GP and getting access to mental health professionals. Or if that's not happening for you, an organisation like Mikey's Line can sit down with you and help you develop a safety plan to keep yourself safe. Thank you for listening. A huge thanks to Shona and all the team at Mikey's Line for the work they do, and to John Gibson, of course, for sharing his story. This episode was sponsored by D&D Paving Limited. Please do like, share and comment about the podcast. And if you want to get involved by sponsoring an episode or telling your story, get in touch with Mikey's Line. Speaking of Suicide is an adventurous audio production. The music is Nana by Tom Ireland. Mm-hmm.